News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You've undoubtedly heard the phrase body snatchers, but how old do you think it is? There's a lot of history actually attached to it. In fact, a couple of hundred years ago, there was money involved in being a literal body snatcher to the point where it made murder profitable. It's a story that our next guest can tell us all about. Johnny Thompson is a philosopher and writer for Big Think. Thanks for being back with us. Oh, thanks, Sydney. Thanks for having me. Johnny, where do you find these stories? Oh, well, yeah, they're, they're interesting, aren't they? They're great. Yes. I mean, this one is particularly kind of like uh, macabre. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a 19th century Britain, and this is the dawn of physiology when doctors from London to Edinburgh um, need corpses, really, because they're doing kind of these medical dissections. So um, in Edinburgh, there's one physician called Robert Knox who's doing two dissections every day to these sellout crowds of students and, and the public. And yeah, he's running out of, of bodies. Um, because Scottish law at the time essentially said that you could only have bodies which came from either criminals, suicides or orphans, which obviously limited the number of bodies you could have. So people turned to to grave robbing. Yeah, they would um, dig up corpses and they would sell them to the physicians who would then kind of dissect them with, with no questions asked, really. And yeah, you mentioned it was, it was quite lucrative. It really was. So in, in today's money, we think that the bodies were worth between $1,000 and uh, $1,500. Um, and it would depend upon the time of year that you found the body. So in the summer, they'd be worth a bit less because um, they would Right. Decompose in the hot in the hot weather. Yeah, so I don't think we need all those details. I don't think we need to picture <laughs> any of that, Johnny. <laughs> yeah. So it was was it because I mean the study of medicine obviously was relatively new in that way, right? Mm. Back then. Mm-hmm. Is that what made it so fascinating to people that they actually wanted to watch a dissection? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, they, they were learning so much more about kind of biology and science more broadly and stuff. So yeah, it, it was definitely a lucrative kind of like part, um kind of uh, profession for a lot of people but the problem was that in it, it went, in the story of Burke and Hare which is the story I wrote about was um, in mid 19th century uh, people were getting wise to these kind of grave robbing really and they were kind of like fighting back so they were putting guards on on graveyards and they were having kind of like locked up tombs and things and you could you could hire a, a multi-ton stone to be put on your on your grave until the the body um decomposed enough that it lost its value so um burke and Hare were these two irishmen who were, who were active in edinburgh at the time and they and they were trying to get around this really and so um i mean essentially they they were kind of petty criminals for most of their lives they were kind of the drunk and bolshy and antisocial but never really kind of like murderers and they kind of turned the murderers or turned body snatchers really when um one of burke's tenants a man called old old donald died from um alcohol overdose and he owed Burke uh, money in back rent. So Burke and his mate Hare, they got this plan that they, they were going to kind of shuffle his, his body along to Robert Knox, his physician, and they, were, and they would sell it. And, they, you know, in their mind, it was kind of fair play because this, this Donald owed them some rent. Right. So they're going to try and sell his body to make back the, but, but the rent. And, yeah, it, it, it worked. They, um, when the coffin was delivered by the local councilman, um, they kind of stuffed it full of, of kind of wood chips. They hid the body under the bed and then they, they whisked it away to Robert Knox's assistant who... Yeah, he asked no questions. In fact, I think he said, uh, we'd be glad to see you again if you have another body to, oh, to dispose of. And, and and yeah, they did have a, a few bodies to dispose of after that. They went on a, on a big killing spree after that. So just um, how did they do it, though? Because obviously you have to be careful if they were selling these bodies. Yeah, you do have to be careful. I mean, so this is 19th century Britain and in Edinburgh. So um, unfortunately, they, they targeted what we'd probably call this, this kind of like an underclass of Victorian Britain. So they targeted mainly beggars and drunks and prostitutes and kind of like travelers who were passing through the city who were just basically unlucky enough to be boarding with either Burke or Hare. Um, they basically had the same kind of like operation each time they would get their kind of victims kind of paralytically drunk with whiskey and they'd have this great night of dancing and fun until the victim basically passed out and then when they were passed out they they would suffocate them because suffocation was the best way to kind of ensure that the body remained fresh for the for the dissectors and the, and the medical profession but i mean, I mean this, this, so they sold they, they sold all of their boxes to this guy called robert knox and robert knox he must have known what was going on well yeah um I, I, I mean, I don't want to spoil the narrative too much, but he, he never was found guilty. He was never even arrested, actually. And yet the, the two criminals they were, were putting, they were, they were stuffing bodies into whiskey barrels and they were rolling them to Robert Knox. And they were delivering corpses which were literally warm and they were fresh. And um, oh my goodness. And at one time they brought, 
Yeah, I know. They That's kind of suspicious. One... Is that not kind of suspicious, though, Johnny? Well, you, you'd think so. you think he'd ask at least a few questions. If, yeah, one time yeah. They, they brought this victim called Mary Patterson, who was, yeah, as I say, warm. And not only did they not ask questions, but Knox's assistant, they, they pickled the corpse in the whiskey barrel for three months just to avoid any more suspicion. Um, and there's another time where they, they murdered a, a street performer, a guy called James Wilson, who had um, deformed feet and, and, and a scarred face. And there were some students in uh, Robert Knox's room who kind of recognized the body. So they quickly whisked it away. And, and, and so rather than kind of like maybe, you know, ask questions of Burke and Hare, they cut off the hands and the head so that no one would recognize the body again. I mean, Robert Knox knew but he was he was a rich kind of upper class right. uh, member of the scientific community. So I mean, when it came to the end, they didn't really tend to to kind of persecute well, um, prosecute those kind of people. Okay, well, let's talk about that. Then, how did it come to an end? How did they get? Please tell me they got busted. Well, they did get busted. I mean, the reason why I think people like this Burke and Hare story is that they were just the, the, the sheer audacity of it. That they got more and more brazen with what they were doing. So at one point, there was a police constable, for example, walking home a, a drunken lady home, and and Burke went up to the constable and said, "Don't worry, don't worry, mate. I'll, I'll take this to take her home for you." And of course, he took her home and and he killed her. Another time, there were Hare's wife's cousin, so so Hare's cousin-in-law was coming to stay, and and yeah, they killed her as well. So you know, it, they were getting worse and worse and worse, and and they went a bit too far in the end. So so they they had the one lodger called uh, Margaret Doherty who was staying, and they had some other lodgers there who were kind of getting in the way of the of the would-be murder. So they paid for these lodgers to go somewhere else, and then they killed Margaret Doherty. And then when these other two, these James and Anne Gray, came back, um, they saw essentially the feet under the bed. Um, you know, that Birkenhead hadn't, hadn't even bothered to That's hide crazy. the corpse. I know. They were, I mean, by this point, you. I mean, maybe, you know, the, the, the Freudian psychologist and you kind of think you, they maybe wanted to get caught because, you know, they're getting more and more kind of bold in what they were doing. So the Greys went to the police and the police went straight back to Birkenhead's um, lodgings and, and they arrested the two. But, you know, of course, then, then the police have this big problem that they're, they're trying to try these people, but all of the evidence, all of the all of the bodies are now in the biomedical waste department of, of Knox's um, kind right. of like laboratory. So what they did is that they went to Hare and they did what's called to turn the king's evidence, which is essentially where Hare becomes an informer. And they offered him and his wife immunity if, if he confessed to all the crimes, which yeah he did. And there was this trial of, of Burke and he was yeah, sentenced to be hanged on um, the 28th of January, well, 1829. 1829. Yeah. Wow. Johnny, was there public outrage at this? There was, yeah. I mean, the biggest outrage was that what Hare, Hare and his wife and Burke's wife were never actually found guilty at all, and so they, they, their mobs were formed and they chased them out of town, basically. And we, to this day, we don't know where where those people ended up. Really, some people think maybe went back to Ireland, some people maybe Australia. But um, so, I mean, the the, 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 the fun end to this really or the kind of the macabre end to this is that the uh, the judge at um, Burke's trial actually said to him that I think your body should be publicly dissected and anatomized what? kind of like it <laughs> I know so we're gonna make like a show out of it Scotland yeah. yeah well and that's exactly what happened so it wasn't um, Knox because Knox had now kind of basically been kind of like uh, he wasn't arrested but he was struck off the Royal College of Surgeons and he was banned from lecturing and his and he was basically notorious for what he did so the another surgeon at the time a man called Alexander Monroe who was this greatest surgeon in Edinburgh he yeah he was put in charge of dissecting Munro's hanged corpse and yeah as you say he put on quite a show there, there was like there were riots outside where people wanted to come to watch this this anatomization this dissection and yeah so as as um Munro was dissecting the corpse he would dip his uh, his his quill in the blood of Munro of, of this, is to, so to <laughs> this is so awful that that's what they were doing for entertainment to punish the people who'd been yeah I mean, in, in fairness to Munro, in fairness to the people, I mean, these two people had been murdering uh, the people of Scotland for about, you know, on, on a seven-month murder spree. But yeah, you're right. It's the, it is kind of like a, a bloodthirsty kind of yeah. spectacle, isn't it? But so actually, if any, any of the listeners are actually find themselves in Edinburgh, you can still see Burke's skeleton today in um, an Edinburgh museum. <laughs> I know they, they kind of put it up for display, really, to kind of to prove to everyone this is what happens to... Uh, you know, murderers in Scotland, really. So it's a, uh, yeah, it's, okay. it's so an interesting tale, isn't it? Really? If you're visiting <laughs> Edinburgh, you can still go and see the the skeleton on display. Yeah, if, if dark tourism is your thing, you can go and, and see his kind of like, his, yeah, the skeleton of, of, of Burke, the the body snatcher and, and murderer. Yeah. Boy, Johnny, you sure know how to pick them. Uh, thanks for this story. <laughs> Appreciate that. No, thanks for having me on. <laughs> That's Johnny Thompson, philosopher and writer for Big Think. And so I was intrigued by this, this idea that you could still go and see the skeleton and you can. Uh, it is at the University of Edinburgh. 
which is absolutely crazy. And if you just look up Burke skeleton, yeah, there's all sorts of information about it after all this time, after the last couple of hundred years. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. There's a lot to talk about when it comes to the carbon tax this morning. Good morning, Vaughn. Yeah, good morning, Simi. It's interesting how some issues... We think they go away yeah. and then they come back. So British Columbia has had a carbon tax since 2008. We had a provincial election fought on the carbon tax and the party that supported it, uh, the then BC Liberals, won the election. New Democrats swung around and decided they supported carbon taxation too. And we went through several provincial elections where it really wasn't a big issue at all. And wow, here it is back Opinion poll this week, okay, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, but still two to one opposition for carbon taxation in BC. And as it happens um, in British Columbia yesterday, Pierre Polyev, the federal conservative leader, who I think one of the reasons he's surfing the wave in the public opinion polls these days is because of his opposition to the carbon tax. I think the public has turned against the carbon tax, even here in BC. Yes, uh, you might get different results by a different pollster, but it does show a growing opposition to the tax. It, it's. I think it has a lot to do with the amount of money people are spending these days, and they need yeah. some relief, and it's that's an easy one, right, to point to that and say, well, that's an immediate relief that I could get. You know, I think that's a big part of it. We went through an era where inflation was not a big deal. Interest rates were flat. And I don't think you had a huge amount of concern about cost of living. You did have concern about things like housing affordability. So it wasn't without concerns. But no, I I think you're right. I think what's happened now is everybody's looking at their grocery bill and their monthly bills and their monthly budget. And they look at their home heating bill, uh, if they're getting heating with oil or gas, and they go, I'm paying this carbon tax. Or they go and they pay at the pump for gasoline, and there's a carbon tax. And I think people are increasingly aware that it's one of the reasons that goods that have to be hauled by vehicles are more expensive. So, yeah, it's an easy one to say, Uh, Give me some relief on the carbon tax and the comeback that it's necessary to fight climate change is complicated by the fact that, Simi, here in British Columbia, here in Canada, we could shut down our entire economy and it wouldn't deal with the problem of uh, climate change, uh, carbon pouring into the atmosphere, because we know And the evidence shows it that other jurisdictions are not dealing with it to the degree we are. British Columbians had the highest gas tax in Canada. Uh, Has it had an impact on anything other than our pocketbooks? I think you could argue no. Okay, so Pierre Polyev comes to town. This will undoubtedly be a big showpiece that he talks about. Yeah, he, uh, he was here yesterday, so he did an interview on CKNW. He was uh, talked to our friend Rob Shaw, I checked last evening. Uh, he had a rally in Duncan. I think 1,500 people showed up, which is pretty good for a political rally these days. And I see uh, John Rustad, the leader of the BC Conservatives, just happened to drop by to see Pierre Polyev and posted a picture of him. And, you know, Rustad and... Uh, Rustad and Polyev both uh, carry the name conservative, although they're different, separate political parties, and they agree on one thing. Uh, Polyev wants to get rid of the carbon tax completely, and so does Rustad. So, you know, he's capitalizing, uh, the BC Conservative leader is capitalizing on the popularity of the federal leader, and I think you'd have to accept that some of the favorable showing for the Conservatives in opinion polls, provincial ones here in BC, is because people are, you know, picked up on the conservative theme. They may not be aware that BC United, uh, BC Liberal Party has reorganized itself as BC United, and or they may just like the Polyev message and assume that the provincial party is going to have the same kind of message. And there is some evidence that they're not mistaken. You see Rustad on the carbon tax, he's echoing Polyev on it and saying the same thing. Interesting that just meeting with John Rustad, though, you would thought that maybe Kevin Falcon would meet with him, too. 
Well, you know, <clears throat> there's an interesting bit of history there because you remember when uh, Christy Clark beat Kevin Falcon for the leadership of the BC Liberal Party, as it was then known, in 2013, Clark's roots were in the federal Liberal Party and Falcon's roots were in the federal Conservative Party. And there was some thought that because the BC Liberals had actually picked an actual Liberal as their leader, that they might have trouble attracting Conservative votes. And the then Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, went out of his way, as did other federal Conservatives, to make it very clear in British Columbia that if you want to defeat the NDP in BC, you vote for the BC Liberals, even though the name Liberal sticks in the throat of many Canadians. So uh, it helped. Uh, Christy Clark won that election. But looking ahead now, Simi, to next year, provincial election in BC, uh, would one expect Pierre Polyev to come out here and do a whole bunch of events or even one event with Kevin Falcon saying, this is the guy you vote for if you want to uh, defeat David Eby? Or more likely, will Polyev just stay on the fence uh, maybe, you know, not go to either party out here. Um, I don't, I actually politically don't see how it would necessarily help him to endorse a BC party, uh, given the split in the center-right vote out here. And, you know, on some issues, particularly the carbon tax, I would say Polyev is closer to Rustad than he is to Falcon. Talking with Von Palmer from the Vancouver Sun, and we have an update on a story about the naughty list. And I've always been interested in this, Vaughn, to find out, well, how did they decide who makes the naughty list? Well, the government announced the naughty list, which is the municipalities that were going to have to pull up their socks and approve more housing back in May. And they did that, Simi, as a prelude to some of the legislation we've been seeing this fall encroaching on municipal jurisdiction. But the triggering thing, the thing that got everyone's attention was the naughty list. There were 10 municipalities on it. And what the government said at the time was they didn't just pick these names out by throwing darts at a dartboard. This was scientific. They consulted experts. They developed an empirical standard for determining whether you were naughty or not. So, um, to his credit, uh, you know City Hall Watch, Randy Helton yep. decided, asked the government, okay, so who are these experts that you vetted the list with? And what was the empirical basis that you determined that these 10 municipalities were naughty and others weren't as naughty? Of course, ran into a total stone wall. There's a great account of this by Bob Mackin in Business in Vancouver on Friday. He gives the whole saga. But it's, this is classic of how a government that promised openness and transparency and claimed this list was not just picked out of the air. It was scientific and run by experts and all that, uh, responded to that request. So initially they said, okay, well, you're going to have to file an access to information request. We're not going to tell you these 10 people that were our experts. They didn't even tell there were 10 initially. So uh, you pay 10 bucks. So anyway, uh, they come back and they say, um, it's going to take us a while to dig all this out. So um, you're going to have to pay the cost of researching it. So that's another $180 for six hours worth. And then they come back in August, Simi, and they say, you know what? We haven't been able to get that done yet. We're going to have to ask for an extension. So finally, they release the list on November the 1st. They release it to City Hall Watch and... Uh, they give back <laughs> they give back some of the money because it didn't take as long to research. They had the names in a file, Sammy. This did not involve a public <laughs> no kidding, right? to find this stuff. Uh, so anyway, they gave uh, some of the money back and they gave the list over. And so now we know that uh, way back in May, the government called in uh, 10 handpicked experts and they ran the list by them and in some cases I think got them to vet the math as well and that's how we ended up with the naughty list and I would say in addition how we ended up with some not all but some of uh, the municipalities on the list. Okay. So the, t the 10, you want to know who Yeah, I do. That's, that was okay, my so next question. It's interesting. it's interesting because, you know, some of the 10 are people that we in the news media uh, often consult 
on matters involving housing and government policy. Tom Davidoff at UBC is one of the people that they consulted and uh, the indications in the note that Davidoff uh, also helped put together the empirical standard. Uh, Alex Hemingway, Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, also on the list of people that were consulted. Uh, some people in the development industry as well, so they let them see the numbers in advance as well. I, I'm guessing they didn't say, but I'm guessing they had to sign these non-disclosure agreements. And the other thing that's kind of interesting, Simi, is that uh, several people were invited to come and have a look at the list and the process, and they didn't go. Andy Yan, who we often talk to, Paul Kershaw. Now, I haven't talked to them about why they balked at going, but this government uses people out there that it consults as validators, even when all they've done is sat down and, and read a press release in advance and offered a couple of comments. Um, in this case, they chose not to name the 10, made City Hall Watch fight for the list. We now know, but again, you go, when they won't give you the list up front, what are they hiding? Uh, City Hall Watch, by the way, is saying uh, today that they also have some insights into the actual numbers, the empirical numbers that produced the 10 naughties. They haven't released that yet. I look forward to what they have there as well. But I can say, Simi, that heading my naughty list is a government that absolutely refused to do this yeah. until they were pushed and pushed hard by a public advocacy agency, City Hall Watch. You know what I don't understand about that, Vaughn, is that it would be it would it would behoove them to say, and here's why. We think they're on the naughty list. X, Y, Z. One, two, three. Very simple. Justifies what they're doing. Instead, it's just the catchy press release headline about we're putting these communities on the naughty list. The politicians and the public servants as a group believe that the information they have compiled with taxpayer-funded resources and taxpayer budgets belong to the politicians and the bureaucracy and the government. They do, it does not belong to the public that actually paid for it. And they fight like hell to make it hard to get. That announcement to City Hall Watch, you're going to have to pay 180 bucks for us to just look for the file on this, is one of the things they do to discourage news organizations and the public from asking for anything. Okay, they gave the money back at the end, like you're a small nonprofit organization or even an increasingly small news organization and you go 180 bucks up front and I don't know what I'm going to get to get a few names. Is it worth it? Uh, I, I understand why they do it. It's about control, Simi. It's about making sure that the only information we get out of the government yeah. is that which is approved by the premier's office and the control freaks who work for David but, Eby, and they want to control the message, every last little bit of it, that's why they do it this way. And even though it would kind of justify what they're saying, it would provide more credence to what they're saying, it would help make their argument, they are still, to their detriment, not putting that information out there. That's uh, the part don't I don't get. I, I get that argument, Simi, but that is not how they see it. It is about control. It is about telling us only what they choose to tell us for political reasons. It's uh, these use of validators. So they had 10 people who saw this list ahead of time. I agree. If they had given us the list ahead of time, we would have taken note. We might have called up Tom Davidoff and said, what did you think? Advance and all that. But that's not the way it works. They give us the names when they think it strengthens their case for doing it. Uh, they don't give us the names uh, when they think those people might have something critical to say about what they're doing, because they're free agents, right? A university professor like Tom Davidoff, uh, Paul Kershaw of Generation Squeeze, who, who turned it down, they, they're going to use their academic freedom to sometimes criticize the government and sometimes praise it. But the reason they don't want to give you the names is because they don't want someone who's shown up in a government press release as a validator being quoted the next day by us as saying, well, you know, there's some real serious limitations to this thing that they're doing and it might not work. That's why you want control, total control. I guess so. Well, Vaughn, thank you. 
Bye-bye, Simi. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. This is another case of, oh boy, here we go again. Because it was just a couple of months ago where everyone was up in arms of a childcare facility being denied expansion. Remember that story? There was a lot of community discussion. Then Vancouver City Council revisited the issue. But we heard from so many people saying, we need more childcare. Why are we saying no? Now we have another case to talk about here. It's a child care center for 24 children in an existing residential building near a park, near an elementary school, turned down for a development permit, even though in that existing zoning area, the application was conditional, so it could have been allowed, but the development permit was refused. So what's going on here? Well, we thought we would ask Mike Klassen, ABC Vancouver City Councillor, who joins us now to talk about it. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi. Okay, what happened here? Uh, this was a, uh, a home-based uh, child care centre that was looking to double the number of spaces, and uh, it was put in for uh, a potential rezoning and the uh, I guess it didn't meet uh, with all the current criteria that we have right now. Um, We have uh, over the last several years put um, been able to license a couple hundred uh, home-based residential based child care centers. In the last year or so we've had three applications total that have not met the bar Um, but that said we need more child care and that's why uh, we're committed to trying to make sure that we can either work with this applicant or others to make sure that we can get more spaces happening. Okay that's what I was wondering I thought you know given that there is this great need Is there not a process at City Hall where you say, okay, there's a couple things wrong with this application. We want to work with you to make it happen rather than just outright saying refused. Uh, We do have a process and and it is uh, certainly there's a discretionary ruling by the director of planning. And if the director of planning says no, then it can go to the board of variants. Um, But all of those processes are very costly. And that's one thing that we want to look at. It can cost somebody thousands of dollars. Margins are very tight on childcare. So that's an area, again, that we can be looking at. And the great uh, news is that there are things that have been happening. So uh, last December, uh, Councillor uh, Lisa Dominato and uh, I seconded the motion uh, to look at our current regulations and try and harmonize as much uh, with the provincial government. So that information is coming forward. I believe we're getting a report next week. Uh, and so we'll be responding to it in real time within the next, by, certainly by the next council meeting, which will be uh, a couple of weeks from now. Okay, so in a case like this, then, could this be revisited? Uh, Certainly it could be, uh, and it could be uh, based upon new direction that council decides. Of course, we have to uh, look at, see what the the possible uh, ramifications are of these things. So, for example, um, the the application like this one, if it does uh, get changed to larger spaces, it would uh, essentially go from being residential to institutional. Uh, Currently, what we need to do for that is we need to have them replace them with commercial spaces of uh, sprinkler uh, requirements, which are very expensive. So maybe we can Uh, look at making sure that existing uh, residential sprinkler uh, requirements and fire safety code are met. Um, There's the whole question of parking. This is something that often can get waived, um, but it can be uh, a real uh, um, irritant for people who are living nearby who might think that uh, the pickups and drop-offs are too much. But we do know that basically with childcare centers like these, they're staggered. It's not like the school zone where exactly, people yeah. sort of sit around for a half an hour in their car idling waiting for the kids to come out. People come and go as their uh, sort of daily demands uh, require. I wonder as well, has the city undertaken any effort to take a look at uh, citywide? Are there areas of the city that are more in desperate need of child care than others? Like there must be some kind of dead zones when it comes to child care out there. Oh, no, no, no question about it. We've seen uh, there are these uh, sort of child care deserts that we know that are on the east side, uh, the south side. Um, we're going to be, and that's why with any direction that comes forward, we really do need to emphasize uh, prioritizing those areas. Right. Um, and I think, listen, we've got a, a shortage of approximately 15,000 uh, spaces uh, for 
per current demand. That, those are our own numbers. That means we need to really uh, start thinking differently about this, and it means going to communities and asking them, are they okay with having more childcare in their area? Now, we would be able to, of course, limit, say, the number of per block or, or, or a particular area, but at the same time, we want to make sure that there's lots of choice and a lot of options. You know, my daughter, when she was in childcare, uh, started off in a home-based uh, childcare well, center. I think tons fantastic. of people did. My kids did too. And the, yeah. the, the thing that we always want to make sure that these are licensed. We have about 163 uh, currently licensed home-based uh, childcare in the entire city, which seems very small given that we have probably about 350,000 homes in the city of Vancouver. So uh, I think we can do a lot more and we can really, uh, and I get, I totally believe the public is on side on this and, and that's why we're taking action on this very soon. Okay, good. Because when I looked at the location of this, that's kind of what sold me on this. I mean, this, we talked about the areas that need it. This is the east side. It's almost Boundary Road, mm-hmm. close to Grandview Highway. So an area that you would think, okay, there is a big park here that's nice, but it's a very busy area. There are some schools there. And there, I would say, a need for childcare. You worry about parking. There's all these huge big box stores right across the way. There's no question about the demand. We just have to be uh, very cognizant of the, the actual priv- provincial guidelines. There has to be a certain amount of square meters per child. So if you have, uh, in this case, doubling from 8 to 16, uh, that means you have to sort of stagger the use of the outdoor space w- uh, within the property. Yes, there's a park there. So we have to make sure the park board is, is clear that the park is going to be used as well. And then and it, uh, it's the perennial, you know, the pickup, drop-off, parking availability, all those things I think we can work through and try and just create just tons and tons of more spaces across the city. So, Keltzer, what would you say to somebody who is considering opening a child care facility in the city of Vancouver? I would say that they've got a very open door right now. I've met with so many applicants in the last few months, and they're all sort of telling us the, the range of concerns they have, certainly the costs, uh, the uncertainty. We want to make sure that there are very clear guidelines that are updated and modern for the needs of families today. Do you think it'll get better in 2024? I think absolutely. I do believe so. And in fact, I would say that those who have um, had some troubles this year getting applicants done, we're going to take a look at those ones again because they're sort of new enough that we think that it merits uh, another look. And if we make some policy changes uh, subject to the support of the rest of the council, uh, we could probably get those ones uh, moving forward as well. I have a feeling we're going to have to have you back to talk about that. Uh, Thank you for explaining that. You bet. Thanks for listening. That is Mike Klassen, ABC Vancouver City Councilor talking about the child care situation. Have you noticed this in your neighborhood? I mean, this is great, right? Near a park, near a school. We want a child care facility there. Uh, so we need to see more of those. And would you have a problem with that in your neighborhood? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, we're going to talk about the fentanyl crisis. It is a crisis that we have, and not just here in Vancouver, not just here in BC, not just here in Canada, but all over North America. It's become such a big deal that it is also the very hot topic of conversation uh, with President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping. They're expected to announce an agreement today that would target the manufacture and export of fentanyl from China to the United States. So... Could this make a difference for us too? Well, we thought, let's get some details on this. Reggie Cicchini joins us now, our Washington correspondent for Global News. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, so this is, a, I know, a bigger deal, right? There, there's a lot. This is a very high-level meeting between these two leaders. Sure. It's 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 huge. Uh, number one, uh, it's because President Biden and President Xi have not talked to each other in over a year. The last time they met was at the G20 um, in the fall of last year. Now, given the fact that this is going to be an important meeting, there's a lot to be discussed. You know, the administration is going in with low expectations that there's going to be some kind of concrete result on any number of topics that are going to be discussed. But the fentanyl crisis is going to be big because, uh, as you mentioned, it's 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 plaguing uh, streets across North America. I think the United States, according to the CDC, it's 150 people are dying per day from the drug. So the administration is trying to go after China to ensure um, that that the, the flow of fentanyl out of that country to a place like Mexico, where, where a lot of it is produced, is curbed. Okay, so can that actually have a, a different? Can that actually make a difference? I mean, it's possible. Um, I think that there are realities, though, that should be looked at. Number one, 
whatever this agreement is, is going to, at least in the eyes of the government in Washington, assist uh, with something that is not only a public health crisis, but it is also a political crisis. But it is also worth remembering in 2018, under the Trump administration, Donald Trump and President Xi signed an agreement that would try to curb yeah. the flow of, of, uh, of the ingredients used for fentanyl to come out of China. And in 2015, under Barack Obama, there was a similar agreement that was put in place that would allow for um, it to be considered a controlled substance. The problem being that in each of these agreements, you know, it targets individual things. And there's a lot of companies and a lot of government hands that try to get their, you know, hands on how production and, and manufacturing is done in China. So what happens with one may not happen with the other. So this it's it's again, it's, it's a step. We don't know what the what the kind of formalized details of this are. But there's also nothing to say that China is going to adhere to whatever is agreed to, and this could very easily fall apart. Oh, boy. Okay. And this is for the APEC summit, right, which is happening in San Francisco, which has a fentanyl problem. And the the, the mayor of San Francisco, London Breed, has been very vocal about uh, the detriment that the drug is having on the streets in that city. And, you know, it, it's not likely that, that some of these world leaders, including President Xi, are, are going to come face-to-face with um, the kind of devastating impacts that fentanyl can have have in a place like San Francisco. But it's also worth kind of pointing out here that a couple of weeks ago, there was a congressional delegation, um, including Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who was on the ground in China and had a face to face with President Xi and talked about, um, you know, the personal impacts that that fentanyl is having on people in the districts that these um, representatives represent. Um, and they said that the, the FaceTime was longer than what they had expected, and they mm. hoped that that would have made a difference here. So again, there there is there is an understanding. It is very clear to China what fentanyl is doing, not only to its country, but to countries around the world. And the hope here is that whatever this agreement is that's worked out between Biden uh, or the administration and the Chinese government is going to do something here, because the White House is under significant pressure to try and 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 get the situation under control because there's it's it's harder to run into somebody now that has not been impacted oh, yeah. by this crisis. So that is the difference then between what you talked about the other times they tried to do this versus now is that there seems to be a better understanding of the impact of this. Yeah, I mean I mean look, it, it's hard for China to say or to turn a blind eye right, right. to the crisis that that is being manufactured by its own production facilities again is is oftentimes it's then being shipped down to Mexico and you know again worth pointing out there's been a trilateral agreement across North America with its leaders to try and and prevent this from getting out of Mexico into places like the United States and Canada. But again, it starts with production facilities in China. And that's why there's a push here to try and ensure um, that, that, that the manufacture and export of fentanyl is going to be controlled. But again, this is give and take. This right. is what Washington wants. China wants things in return. And if the U.S. doesn't give China what it wants, who's to say that this agreement is going to go any further than the paper that it's written on? Oh, boy. All right, Reggie, thank you for the update. Thank you. That is Reggie Cicchini, our Washington correspondent for Global News, talking about an agreement expected to be announced today uh, between U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping about the manufacturing and export of fentanyl from China to the United States. So what they are aiming to crack down on is the kind of uh, chemical companies that are producing the source materials for fentanyl. And I guess in return for that, if China will actually crack down on this, the Biden administration is agreeing to consider lifting restrictions on a Chinese forensic police institute that has been accused of human rights abuses. So clearly a little give and take here. As Reggie pointed out, these two leaders have not spoken in a year, uh, but this deal is set to be revealed at the APEC summit that is happening now. And if they can actually make a difference in the fentanyl production, boy, that would be huge, right? And there's a lot of influence here from Mexico as well, because they often, the cartels in Mexico have been ordering the components from China. Uh, it goes to Mexico where it is then, you know, created and then shipped across the border to the United States. Interestingly enough, though, you may have heard this story back at the beginning of October that a faction of the Sinaloa cartel, which is a huge cartel that is actually led by the sons of El Chapa, who's now in jail, has banned fentanyl production and sales in Sinaloa in Mexico, saying that they no longer want to have anything to do with it. They said they should leave this business uh, because it's causing them too much trouble, too much attention from authorities. So can that actually turn things, down, turn things around when it comes to the fentanyl crisis? We will see. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Interesting discussion going on in some cities around, across Canada right now is about turning right on a red light. Should it be banned? Now, they've had this in Montreal for a long time, even though occasionally there is talk there about doing away with it. But the question is always the same. Like, do we know if this is effective or not? Is there enough safety data to say, yes, this is a good thing, or no, this is not effective. Well, joining us now to talk about this is Valerie Smith, Director of Road Safety and Safe Mobility Programs at Parachute. Valerie, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So what do we know about this? If Is turning right on a red light a problem? Yeah, so it's, it's a loaded question, and, and my first answer would be, yes, I believe it is. You know, our challenge in Canada um, is that there's a real lack of studies and publications that provide high quality evidence that, you know, for or against no right turns on red. Uh, There are a number of recent smaller scale studies uh, that do show us that um, banning right turns on red do reduce conflicts and collisions, but they don't specifically look at how it impacts serious injuries and death. And that's something we need to get better at and we need to do more studies on. Okay, so what would be, what do you think would be effective by telling people that you can't turn right on a red? What would happen if we did that? So we know for sure that there's, you know, there's different schools of thought. So we certainly have uh, groups of drivers that are absolutely against a ban on, uh, with right turns on red. However, what we do at Parachute is, our role is to keep people safe and keep people, all road users, safe on the road. And when you really think about right turns on red and, you know, you envision it and think about potential loved ones crossing the road, it is a hostile environment for both pedestrians and cyclists. Now, we've got drivers that are supposed to come to a full stop on a red. Uh, we know that doesn't happen. We know that there's so many distractions for drivers. We have more people driving bigger cars, SUVs. And so the potential impact for pedestrians trying to get across the road while another, while a car is turning right is pretty intense. Um, and then, you know, you think even further, how about children? How about, you know, the small kids trying to cross the road that the driver may not see? Or, see, you know, seniors, people with mobility issues and sight impairments. So it's, it's complex and it's uh, the current environment where we do allow right turns on red is, I would say, hostile is a really great way to describe it. Hmm, interesting, because I know there's some, here in Metro Vancouver, there are some intersections where it says clearly no right turn on red, and yet I still see people do it. It, it, it would be hard, I think, to get that message through to people. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, and that's compliancy, right? So even if we impose a law in our cities where you can't turn right on a red, we need to make drivers compliant. Um, And, you know, we believe in a Vision Zero system, uh, and a Vision Zero system would would absolutely uh, support a no right turn on red. However, it would not just support a single policy. It would want to see education. It would want to see enforcement. You know, do we need red light cameras? Do we need to enforce that law um, in a better and stronger way in order to make the intervention work? Right. You know, the, the then other we need the info, is, though, don't we, Valerie? Like, we would need more safety data for this. Yeah, I mean, and in the meantime, we need to think about that risk that we're currently putting on vulnerable road users that are just trying to get from A to B. So, yes, agreed, we don't have enough data. We need to do more. We need to get better data. In the meantime, we need to really think about what areas in our cities have a lot of pedestrians, have high traffic, have high volume of people trying to get across the road? And then we have to think about, are they safe? And, you know, my, my answer would be, in most cases, they're not safe. There's, there's too many variables happening at that right turn on reds that don't allow a pedestrian to, to cross in the safest way possible. Is it possible to tailor this, that that Vision Zero strategy you were talking about there, to say, okay, if it's a pedestrian-heavy area, maybe implement this? Yeah, and definitely uh, the data would support that. We would need to consider, as I said, what intersections have that high volume of pedestrians, and then we could support the interventions with the data. The challenge with having 
uh, a no right turn on red in selected areas of our cities is that it becomes a little less user-friendly for both drivers and pedestrians. You know, they, they don't necessarily know which city or sorry, which intersections right. have that ban. And as you said, even with the sign um, being very visible, not all road users will see that. Um, so that's, that's where the blanket ban throughout cities is really argued for. Right. Okay. So are there cities that are considering doing this right now where this could happen? Yeah, we know the number of cities in the United States. We know of cities throughout Canada. There are cities that in Canada that are already doing a lot of, um, they're already putting that intervention in. It's just not across the entire city. So we're hearing more and more about it. And um, yeah, there is, there's a demand to, to see more safety at these intersections. Do you think it's because, Valerie, that perhaps some of our communities are becoming more walkable, that there is less of an emphasis on driving everywhere? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, coming out of COVID, we saw a lot of people getting out of their cars, a lot more cyclists on the road, uh, roads, a lot more people walking. And there's also more of a culture, I think, nowadays where we want our kids to walk to school. We want to move about our cities um, outside of our cars. And if we want to do that, we need to uh, create and instill confidence in our um, in our pedestrians and cyclists, and that's where the right turn on reds. You know, as as coming back to that hostile environment, um, we're not going to create that in that confidence unless we you know have a better look at these policies and and where we can implement them. All right, Valerie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate that. Valerie Smith is Director of Road Safety and Safe Mobility Programs at Parachute. Uh, They advocate for, you know, essentially red light, uh, turning right on a red light ban. And lots of cities, she said, are thinking about this. It would require people to really pay attention. And I'm not just, I'm just not sure that level of attention is there. I see it all the time. It sounds like I was thinking about the intersection at Oak and 70th, actually. And I see it there all the time. It's very clear. No right turn on the red light. Lots of signage that says it. And yet I see people do it. And I'm always sitting in my car going, no, 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 no. Don't do it. Don't do it. And then I see people do it anyway. Would people pay attention? Do you even think that's a good idea? Well, let's hear from you on this. Simi at cknw.com. You can also call or text our buzz line, 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. What was the objective in decriminalizing those drugs? Their idea was that this would reduce stigma. Fortunately, the government is only telling half the story and they've only put half the work in. Okay, so that's just another little clip there from that controversial video we're talking about this morning. Now, we have a public health crisis in our province when it comes to overdoses and addiction. Nowhere is that more evident than on the downtown east side. It is a tragic situation there. It's also ripe to potentially be exploited by people who want to get attention, which is what seems to happen earlier this month when a YouTuber from the United States decided to take a tour of the area. There has been a lot of criticism of that video. People say the conditions were skewed, the location's inaccurate, that vulnerable people were ambushed on the street and used as clickbait. One of the video creators actually is even facing charges in Oregon of theft, identity theft and misconduct. But also in that video, an appearance from BC United MLA Eleanor Sturko, and there are questions about why. So we thought, well, let's ask her about that. She joins us now. Eleanor Sturko is with us, BC United Shadow Minister for Mental Health and Addictions and Recovery. Thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me this morning. Good morning to me. Good morning. So why did you appear in this video? Well, I didn't know I was going to <clears throat> appear in the video, to be honest. I had received an email from um, a member of the public, someone who has contacted me on, um, you know, through my social media. And it wasn't one of the two people who were involved in the making of this video, but they said they had a friend who was going to be making a documentary um, about Vancouver and would I take a phone call with them. And that's not uncommon for me in my work to do that, to take phone calls with all kinds of people, whether I know them or not. I don't always um, go through and do like an uh, you know, internet screening of people. I just have always assumed, I guess, maybe perhaps wrongly, the best in people. So I agreed to take a phone call. At the last minute, I sort of got a direct message on my um, Twitter DMs. Could I change to a Zoom? Did that. Uh, you know, they were already on the Zoom when I got on. Um, and then only later when someone sent me a copy of the YouTube video, did I actually see that I was included in that. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm not 
you know, I don't walk back the things that I said. I was very critical of our NDP government on its failure to address the opioid crisis, failure to provide uh, the social determinants of health. There was some criticism there when I say in the video, where are these people supposed to go? Um, that was actually because I was about to go into debates on the parks and playgrounds legislation, where we know that in not every city is a harm reduction uh, overdose prevention site. So, you know, am I sorry to appear in that video? Yeah, I, I didn't consent to it. I, I didn't know. Do I agree with the, you know, video that they've made? No, and I do think it's exploitative. I don't, that's not the kind of thing that I would normally want to appear so in. Did you not know that they were recording you when they recorded you? No, I didn't. And actually, I saw some criticism from some people who were upset with this video that how could I not see one of these, um, you know, normally when I do media interviews, which I do a lot of on uh, through Zoom, I think people have seen me before, it'll come up and say, actually, you're being recorded and you have an opportunity to, oh, crap, sorry about that. I hope you can't hear that. Um, no, that was my alarm telling you no. to come on the radio. Anyway, can't um, hear that. No, uh, but I was wondering though, is usually you do know, like that does indicate to you that you are being recorded. So I, did that not come up? I never saw, no, I never saw that. So whether they were actually screen capturing me some other way, or maybe uh, when I clicked on, I didn't notice that I just went through that process without, you know, noticing. But normally like when I do, um, interviews with media, we'll have a like quick chat and then they'll say it'll come up yet yeah, recording start recording i accept that i'm recording i say my name i spell it the whole schmuggle right, right? Uh, that i'm used to and i've done hundreds of media interviews over the years but i i didn't experience that this time so it didn't alert me and it wasn't until later that i was like dang i think i might have been recorded on that you know so and right. then of course someone sent me the youtube and i was like oh my god that's terrible well that's what i'm wondering yeah when you watch that video it is terrible right it definitely exploits oh, people yeah. oh, Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so how did you feel (laughs) when you saw that you were actually a very high profile kind of part of that? Oh, gosh, I I felt embarrassed, of course, because, you know, I'm not embarrassed about what I said, but I don't like that characterization. I don't think it's fair to those individuals who are downtown and are sick and need help. They didn't consent to be in the video. And I don't agree with the characterization of Vancouver. It's obviously incorrect as well. There is no legalization of all drugs in D.C., it does a disservice to people who are human beings trying to cope with a very horrific situation. The only plus side is that here we are having another conversation, right. which is a good thing. And I think, you know, the bottom line is, is that there is a terrible problem in Vancouver and in most of our cities now in British Columbia that is not being addressed by this government. That's my job to criticize the critique that I gave in the video, I think still stands I don't want to wantonly, um, you know, go in these type of videos. And and I do feel sorry if people were hurt by that video. I had no input into how um, this video would turn out or what the subject matter and how they would do this Did you reach out to the people who made the video and say, hey, wait a minute, this is not what you told me? I did, yeah. And actually, I released that screenshot of the DM. um, But of course, they ghosted me. They didn't get back to me. And it's been seen millions of times. So I don't see what difference it would make at this point, other than, you know, me telling my point of view, which is that no, I didn't, you know, willingly participate in this type of video. That's not the type of work that I do. Those types of clickbait things are not even things that I would even share on my own channel. I think before this video, there's been other videos I think that people are well aware of made even by Canadian producers of um, this type of sensationalized um, depiction of our crisis. I don't share those. I wouldn't have wanted to be in one. And it does make me feel sad that people potentially have been hurt um, by this video. Yeah, Does it make you more skeptical, though, when you think, look at this, we are in a situation now where people will try to serve their own benefit with the situation. They will try to manipulate the situation. Does that make you more skeptical about talking to people about this? (laughs) I have to be a little bit more cautious now. So the thing was, and, and I think people that know me and even... Um, members of the public, I've always tried to respond personally to every email that someone has told me a personal story about their experience uh, with either losing a loved one in the opioid crisis or a mental health issue or through my education portfolio. And I've always tried to speak in person to anyone who's requested, you know, to have a discussion about policy and where we stand and, and, you know, hear my critique of current policies. I've always done that without having to worry about going through a major vetting process. But now I do have to, unfortunately, I'm going to have to be more cautious, which could take away from some of that interpersonal interaction that I have 
Hopefully we've been able to have over the right, last but year. if people are still but, legit, then you're still you're still talking to them, right? It's just course. you'd be weeding you know out what? this. <laughs> but even if they record me, I mean, there's not, you know, that's why I, I have to make sure I I can't control what other people decide to do with our conversation. But I will continue to stand up for the things that I believe in. I will continue to voice the things that I believe in. I don't think that people um, on the downtown east side in particular are being well served at this time don't like the way that the video turned out. But that yeah. message remains true for me. But aren't you concerned, though, that this video is going to be used now in a way that is going to manipulate the situation? Oh, probably. And most definitely, I can already tell that, you know, there's individuals who are very upset with um, how vocal I've been against the press to legalize and regulate drugs, uh, hard drugs in British Columbia, instead of a medical-centered model of safe supply. And I have to say that, um, you know, I I see this as their opportunity to try to discredit me. You know, I feel bad for the situation, but will it stop me from, from continuing to stand up for the things that I believe in and then what my party believes in in terms of making sure that we're dealing with a medical-centered um, model to help people, that you know, we're pressing for a recovery-oriented system of care? Right. No. I know that my political opponents love this video. <laughs> you know, they love it and hate it because they want to be able to, to try to discredit me. But, you know... I had no control over the, what this video would be. All right. Well, thanks for your time on that. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. Give me an opportunity to, to share my perspective. That's Eleanor Sturko, BC United Shadow Minister for Mental Health and Addictions and Recovery, talking about her experience of being in this video that is very controversial because it does manipulate the situation. It's People say it takes advantage of the vulnerable on the downtown east side, portrays them uh, in just you know not the way the situation was when these people were there. And Eleanor Sturko says they recorded her without her consent, and she's not happy about that either. Uh, but I have a feeling that, you know what, you're just going to see more of that with the situation becoming so politically charged down there. This is Mornings with Simi. And we are in for a big change here in Canada because the first Canadian coins that will have the face of King Charles are about to start circulating across the country. So the Royal Canadian Mint is set today to showcase its model of the king that is going to appear on one side of all Canadian coins, and they're going to press that onto a loony for the first time. So how significant is this? Well, it was a big deal for them to even get to this point. They had to invite more than 350 artists and engravers to submit their portfolio to their review panel. The winning design actually went to Buckingham Palace for approval too. Uh, So yeah, kind of a big deal here. We wanted to talk about this. Is this a collector? Should you be really paying attention? attention to this? Well, we're asking Brian Grant Duff that question. Brian is a collector at All Nations Stamp and Coin in Vancouver and joins us now. Hi, Brian. Good morning. Uh, Brian, are you going to be collecting these coins? Of course. Why? Well, it's it's a, a big change, as you say, and it's a surprise that it took this long. And it ends a weird thing that the Mint have been doing on the current coins, which they've been still using the Queen's portrait with her dates, 1952 to 2022, or sorry, to 2022, and also dating them 2023. So at least we can get the new portrait on the coins and date them the year without having sort of multi-dates on them. It was my understanding that we weren't going to manage a Charles coin this year, so it's exciting that we are. It sounds like we're in a race with Australia to get the coins out. And I've been speculating as to why it takes so long. I think it's partly they didn't know if Charles would live, and they didn't know whether he would reign or pass it on to William. So they weren't kind of ready. You would think that they knew the queen would die eventually and it would be like an obituary. They'd have their ducks in order and it would come yeah. out in, in quick fashion. But uh, I guess you and I haven't lived through this before since the queen reigned for so long. And not that many people remember what happened with the mint in 1952 and 1953 when George VI died and Queen Elizabeth came to the throne. Uh, and it's important that the mint gets this right. There were problems with the early Queen Elizabeth coins and banknotes. Uh, some of the guys had a shoulder strap and some didn't on the coins. And uh, most famously in the banknotes, the Karsh portrait had what looked like a devil's face in the queen's hair. 
and uh, that was a big deal at the time. And they actually withdrew and, and redid the banknotes without the devil in the queen's hair. So we're looking for the mint to get this right. And uh, and they are, too. They don't want any glitches or mistakes as they launch a new portrait. Well, yeah. OK, so then what do you look for? Just so you gave us a hint there. But as a collector of coins that you think are going to be worth something, what will you be looking for with this new batch? Well, well Charles is joining a 2,500 year tradition of portraits on coins. The first portraits on coins go back to the Persian leaders and Lydia back in the sort of fourth century BC. And uh, so that's the long tradition that he's joining, having his portrait on a coin. They normally seem to change the way the monarch is facing on the coin. So watch for that. And uh, it's kind of fun that it's a, an artist from Montreal who's known for making hockey coins. So I love it when my love of hockey and my love of coins collide. <laughs> That's really cool. And uh, he's also well known for making a portrait of Patrick Waugh's family. So you're getting sort of the, the royal family of Canadian hockey and uh, the literal royal family. So, uh, yeah, okay. I, I, think, I think it's exciting that... It's a sort of hockey portraitist, but a guy who's known for making sort of uh, portraits steeped in historic tradition. Uh, So it's an inspired choice from that point of view and and may get a little bit of extra play in the news because it's a guy who's known for making hockey portraits. And and it means a a guy called Stephen Rosati becomes a household name briefly. Now, Brian, let me ask you, from all the coins that were issued during Queen Elizabeth's reign, are there some that are particularly valuable? Well, generally speaking, the only thing that's going to make these coins valuable is if they, if a mistake is made on them, because that's what seems to attract the most attention from collectors. Otherwise, so many millions are made that they're not especially rare. But it is true, the first of everything is always popular with collectors. So the first Canadian silver dollar, 1935, still popular. Uh, so certainly the first coins of the new king's reign will be sought after by uh, people looking for a souvenir and a keepsake. And it's a great point to start a collection as well. Uh, none of us knows how long the king will last, but uh, certainly it's a, it's a good starting point for that. Generally speaking, if you're looking to collect coins, big is better. So silver dollar size coins or large coins are more popular and small gold coins are popular as well. But how, do we, best- how do we get our hands on an early coin, though, and know that this is one that you know, might be worth some money down the line? Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of like blue chip stocks. If you're trying to collect coins for money, you got to collect old coins in good quality. So uh, a, a Charles coin, unless it's a mistake, isn't necessarily going to be valuable ever. Um, but what you want to do is is look for these coins in circulation. Uh, the liquor stores seem to get them faster than the banks. This is a small tip. And uh, and maybe try and put together a transitional collection where you save the last coins of the Queen's reign and the first coins of the King's reign, particularly since they've got this weird thing with the dates. Okay, like with that weird, like you were saying last year, she died a year ago, but the coins have still continued to be minted. Yes, we're making coins with the Queen's portrait on them, uh, with uh, dates of her reign and then the new date on them. Although we're really, we haven't made any coins for circulation this year. We've only made a few different commemorative coins. So uh, the mint seems to be playing catch up at the last possible moment here and also for the Christmas market, of course. Of course. that's It's that lucrative, is it, Brian, that Christmas market? Well, there's... I, there's always demand for coins from collectors, and of course the Mint makes a range of products, and uh, so there's definitely going to be an interest there, and uh, yeah, so those are available directly from the Royal Canadian Mint and, and often at post offices. Okay, so you're going to be lining up to get this? <laughs> Not necessarily, <laughs> but uh, I will certainly be looking to get some of the Charles coins. And what I like to do is run them in my weekly online auction because that's a way that people can get them quickly. And first, I think we have uh, a couple of the unusual uh, current coins for the first time in our weekly auction this week. And so that's that's the only way I like to sell them is just, just run them through the auction so people have a chance to get them because they are hard to get. 
All right. Well, we'll see what happens. Brian, thanks for explaining it to us this morning. You're welcome. Appreciate your time. Yeah, it's Brian Grant Duff. Brian is a collector at All Nation Stamp and Coin Vancouver. And collectors, especially coin collectors right now, have their eye on this announcement from the Royal Canadian Mint. Today, they are going to showcase their model of the new coin that will have the king, King Charles, on one side because they are transitioning towards having King Charles on one side of all Canadian coins. But it's been such a process to get here. So they said a small amount of 2023 dated coins with the king will start circulating in early December. So those are the coins that Brian was just talking about there, that they might be worth something. And they said coin exchanges are set to take place later in the month at some of the boutiques that the Royal Canadian Mint has, some of the retail stores that they have there. And it took a long time because they wanted to get the portrait done properly. They had to invite more than 350 artists and engravers to submit a portfolio to their review panel. And then they shortlisted some, and then they sent what they thought was the winning design to Buckingham Palace for approval, got approved, came back. It's now featuring the work of Canadian portrait artist Stephen Rosati. He's designed some other coins for the Mint, including six of those silver National Hockey League goalie coins. So yeah, this is a big deal. In Australia, Brian mentioned there's been a bit of a race to get this done here in Canada to you know get there as Australia has gotten it. They've been doing this as well. Their gold dollar coin is set to be the first in Australia to have an image of the the king, and they're expecting to have about 10 million of those dollar coins in circulation in Australia by Christmas. And so we are kind of catching up on that, but you can expect some Canadian coins with King Charles on them to also be in circulation here at the beginning of December.